to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. We're continuing in our series here in the book of Luke, and I believe this is week 15. I may have told you other numbers in previous weeks, but uh, Jeff, <laughs> once we get past 10, I struggle with counting. I run out of hands. Uh, Jeff, Jeff Tate, our amazing uh, tech and AV guy, helped me. He's like, Glenn, I think your numbers are off, and so I went back and adjusted my notes. I think this is uh, part 15 of this Luke series, but here we are in Luke 8, and um, uh, we're, we're about to, to read a very familiar passage. This is Jesus uh, beginning the parable of the sower, and this is the first of the parables in Luke. Luke contains a lot of different parables. Uh, but before we go to the text, I just wanted to make a couple comments uh, that will maybe help us as we, uh, as we kind of approach this text tonight. How many of you, out of curiosity, are on Facebook? Yeah, me too. Uh, how many of you are on Twitter? Slightly less. Some of you are like, what's Twitter? Yeah, it's Okay. Uh, the service is on Twitter, as in you can follow the service on Twitter. It's not really that exciting, but you can. Uh, and, and, but uh, here, have you discovered this with social media? I don't know if this has been your experience, but have you ever put something out there as a status or a, a tweet, and, uh, and then it just started this huge discussion, and then other people that you didn't even know were your friends, but were like friends or your friends, started commenting on what you just said, and then you're like, no, that, that's not even what I meant, and then you're like, you, you check your Facebook at the end of the day or at lunchtime or whatever, because we don't do that during work, right? And uh, <laughs> why are you laughing? I don't understand. And, and, and then all of a sudden you say, 30 comments, all I said was this thing, and you've got, you know, you've got some people who are like, amen, brother, you know, preach it, I love that, you know, and then you have other people who are like, that is so judgmental, or, you know, whatever the case may be, and so, and what's started as sort of you were trying to give kind of an inspirational uh, nugget of the day, and it turned into this massive... So anybody had that happen? Something like that? Okay, yes, you, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, and, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I think what happens with social media is we begin to talk to people uh, beyond the, the realm of people that actually know us, uh, or beyond the realm of, of real relationship or real personal interaction, and that, maybe that's not the case for you. My wife deactivated her Facebook account because she was really frustrated with uh, having or, or having these people uh, sort of as her friends that weren't really friends. Now, probably you, you don't have that, um, but I confess that I sort of accept anyone who asks, you know, like, sure, sure, sure. And I've hit my limit. I can't accept any more friends. And I confess, I don't know uh, all of them, you know. Uh, and I rarely read news feeds because I don't know some of them. And this is what's really dangerous about and twisted about the whole thing is I'll fire off a little tweet or something, some opinion that I'm, something got me riled up, you know. And people, and sometimes it inadvertently launches a, a firestorm of activity. And I'm thinking, I'm supposed to be working today, not engaged in a... And I do, you know, I do work very hard. Um... <laughs> And you realize that we, ne- we have the capability of talking to more people than we actually know. Uh, and the dangers of what that does to relationship, uh, I think it was last year or maybe the year before, I was reading C.S. Lewis's memoir, 
Um, I'm blanking out the name of it now. Surprised by joy. Yeah, and, and he, he talked about in there how he said, I, I have no interest in having more friends than I can actually know. And uh, it struck me as so quaint, <laughs> you know, oh, no more friends than you could actually know because of, of my world and, and how we, so many of us have the ability to broadcast or talk or announce or say something uh, beyond the realm of the personal, beyond the realm of the people that we actually can know. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, who, who um, is as far as the pastoral ministry, and, and of course we know that he translated the message, but I, I think his greatest legacy will be his work on the pastoral ministry and his, his writing and teaching to sort of uh, reclaim kind of a, a sacredness to the pastoral vocation. But uh, he says this phrase, and he's summarizing Soren Kierkegaard, but he says this phrase, the more people, the less truth. And the first time I heard him say that, it really struck me as odd. How could you say, the more people, the less truth? I mean, that, that doesn't sound right. Uh, how, how can that be? And he's, he's, uh, he's giving his own spin. He's summarizing Soren Kierkegaard. I think Kierkegaard wrote an essay called uh, The Crowd is Untruth, or The Untruth of the Crowd, or something like that. Some of you philosopher types will, will have it memorized, but I, I, I don't. Um, but I, I think what Kierkegaard was saying is sort of this thing of, look, when a, when a teacher or when a person stands up in front of a, a group of people and begins to treat them like a crowd, he has dehumanized them. Because they are no, he has disrespected them as individuals and maybe in Kierkegaard's philosophy, sort of the free-acting individual, right? Am I right, David Works? You're kind of a philosophy guy, right? The free-acting individual. And so you sort of dehumanize them by... You, you don't see them as free-acting, choosing agents but you see them as one mass, one crowd. And so the, 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 the crime of this is that the speaker then tries to bend a crowd and, and move them and make them feel and, and act in a particular way. Now, some of you, are, you have the vivid pictures of the Hitler speeches, and you can, you've seen sort of the propaganda images of what a frenzied crowd can sort of do, and so we're well aware of that. But even a teacher with good intentions, for, for even a teacher with good intentions, this little saying, the more people, the less truth, has an interesting side to it. Because let's say the speaker uh, sincerely is not trying to bend a crowd or work the crowd or manipulate the crowd uh, like a bad Ron Howard movie. That was for you, Patton. But, but let's say the, the speaker is not trying to tug on the heartstrings and push the button, but is trying to be honest. Is it still true that the more people, the less truth? Is there a version of this where the larger the crowd, the greater the capacity for people to misunderstand what you're saying? I think Jesus' ministry demonstrates that. There are lots of moments where Jesus is speaking to the crowd and he gets the most puzzling responses from them. If you notice, there were many times where Jesus talked to the crowds, and he either made them really angry and they were ready to crucify him. In fact, I think of the story in John 6 where this crowd comes to him ready to make him king, and then he says, okay, well, well listen, if you really want, are serious about this, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it's an altar call in reverse. Everybody leaves, you know. <laughs> and he says to the 12, will you leave also? You know? So there's something about... And this is what we're about to see in Luke 8. Here's Jesus speaking before a huge a crowd. Luke tells us a large crowd had gathered, and he starts speaking to them, and they don't get it. 
In fact, who were the ones that really, after Jesus' teaching ministry and after his three years of ministry, active ministry on the earth, who were, how, how big was the number of people that really stayed with it and got it? We don't know exactly because there's more than just the 12, but that number we know was whittled down. It was a little bit like the Gideon's army thing. It keeps getting whittled down. So there's something about that that we, we see at work in this. And so there, there's... Uh, what, what, we'll, what we'll see in this text is the disciples coming to Jesus after the sermon and saying, okay, I didn't get that. Now, <laughs> I've, had the, um, I've had that experience a lot. <laughs> Only most of the time people don't come up to me and say, I didn't get that. They just leave and say, that was terrible. You know? uh, I, once in a while, I travel and, and, and speak, and I was just talking to Don and Ruth about this, but I, I, I'll maybe go six or seven or eight times in a year and go speak at something and I used to think that that was really awesome and fun. Like, wow, so cool. I get to speak at this thing or that thing or whatever. And not that there are any cool events, you know. It's like, anyway, whatever. But it's fine. It's an honor. I appreciate it. But I used to think more of it. Now I'm really frustrated by it because I appreciate that when we gather together on Sunday nights, we have a chance to get to know each other a little bit better. You have a chance, and I want you to know this, to always talk to me, email me, ask me questions, push back on something, say, wait a second, what about this? Or what about that? And the dialogue that happens within a congregation is so different from the monologue that happens at an event. And I've come to really not enjoy the, the speaking at an event because then you're, I'm tempted, to be honest, to sort of want to work the crowd. And then when they don't, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and, and the, the beauty of church is that we don't have to do, do it that way. We can, we can have this sermon be the beginning point, the starting point, and then there can be lots more conversations, preferably over food, uh, where we can say, okay, now what did that mean exactly? What do you think about that? Now how does that look like, what does that look like in this or that? Another kind of maybe set up backdrop sort of thing before we read the text is uh, it's a very common thing for people to say that Jesus used parables to connect with the people. <laughs> you laugh. Because you're about to hear Jesus himself say that he's using, he's speaking in parables so that seeing they may not understand and hear, or seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. In other words, I'm telling them these stories so that some, because some of them may not really get it. And you're thinking, well, Jesus, that's, that's kind of the bad preaching, right? I mean, it's kind of bad communicating. I mean, it wasn't the point of the parables to sort of get them to get it. I, I think and I'm, I'm, I'm in the, on the road here of, of discovering this, but I think the point of the parables is to draw you into it and to make you say, now, wait a second, whoa, uh, who, who am I in this? And is this about me? Or, or, or who is Jesus in this? And what's really happening here? What's really at work in here? And it sort of draws you into it. You know, there are times for speaking in, in propositions and giving a, a list of statements and saying, this is what we believe, and this is what we think. And there's certainly places in the Scripture that are like that. But the great, vast majority of our Scriptures are told to us in stories. And we're meant to sort of see a big arc, a big story of creation and covenant and Jesus at the center of it and the new covenant and new creation. And we're meant to kind of see this thing because this is how we are drawn in. We're drawn in as we hear about Moses and Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob. Does that make sense? We're not drawn in with chapter one. Here is what's quality of God number one, A, you know, and one B. You know, we're drawn into this, this, 
great drama and being told that this is the story of God and, G- and His Son and, the, and His glorious redemption, and this is how we are drawn into it. One of the great examples of this in the Old Testament is, do you remember when, when David, King David sins and, uh, and Nathan the prophet comes to him? Uh, I think it would have been a great moment for Nathan the prophet to say, okay, David, uh, let me just be clear, you messed up. Okay, but he knows that there's a lot of dynamics at work. He can't, he's not going to say it that way. Instead, do you remember he tells David a story, right? And he's, he tells a great story about this guy who steals his neighbor's sheep and the neighbor didn't have much and all this stuff. And David is getting into the story. I, I don't know how Nathan told it, but it was in such a way that Na- David's like, I'm telling you, that man deserves to be, you know. And David's, David's got a verdict for that man. And then Nathan says, you are that man. Part of the point of these parables, and we're going to come across more of them as we continue in the book of Luke, but part of the point of the parables is for the Holy Spirit to draw us in and to say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, and then to say, whoa, wait a second, you are that person. That hard heart, that, that, that's you, or that, that stony ground, that, that's you. And we're meant to sort of let the, the Scripture change us. Uh, see, it's not just that we enter the story, but that the, the scripture itself begins to enter us and mess with us like a bad Taco Bell at midnight. You know, like it's supposed to sort of get in you. It's, it's what John says when he says, I ate the scroll and it was sweet and then it made my stomach turn. Uh, part, of, part of what would be wonderful is, is you go home on a Sunday night and you think, oh, that was, man, that's kind of a good... Scripture, you know, teaching and all this stuff. And then you wake up Monday morning and you think, uh-oh. Oh, man. No, I, you know what? That's, I am that woman or I am that man. Or I, you know? And the Holy Spirit begins to work. That's my prayer uh, each time we gather and teach. Okay, finally, we're going to open the text. You ready? Uh, Luke 8, we'll begin with verse 4. I wore a watch this week so that I don't have to keep looking back at the clock and hopefully not detain you any longer. Necessary. Notice I didn't say a time number. Okay. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from one town after another, he spoke to them in a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled on, and the wild birds devoured it. Other seed fell on rock, and when it came up, it withered because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and they grew up with it and it and choked it. But other seed fell on good soil and grew, and it produced a hundred times as much grain. As he said this, he called out, The one who has ears to hear had better listen. And then his disciples asked him what this parable meant. I don't know about you, but there are a lot more perplexing parables that I would have asked Jesus to explain. This one seems fairly... Anyway, they asked. And he said, you have been given the opportunity to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables, so that although they see, they may not see, and although they hear, they may not understand. Now, the parable means this. Thank you, Jesus, for explaining it this clearly for us. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of testing, they fall away. 
As for the seed that fell among thorns, these are the ones who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the worries and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. But as for the seed that landed on good soil, these are the ones who, after hearing the word, cling to it with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with steadfast endurance. The seed, Jesus says, is the word of God. And uh, obviously, I mean, this, this bears saying just for, for clarity's sake, but obviously it's not the Bible. The Bible at the time was, didn't exist. They had their scriptures uh, but he's saying to them the word of God in, in a very real way, not just the scriptures, but, the, but who he is. Uh, that, in, that in some way him saying the seed is the word of God, it's his own announcement that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue and redeem the world. That Luke has spent the, the, the previous seven chapters telling us about Jesus' ministry and how he's, beginning with Luke 4, announced that he's the Messiah, announced that he's the one. Luke has told us these stories of people responding to him and saying, oh, surely God has come to save his people. And Jesus is saying, look, this seed that is being scattered, that is being sown, is this word of God, is the scriptures that have come to fulfillment in me, not just Torah and the prophets and the writings, but all of these scriptures that are now embodied in me. I, I, the, the word of Christ is the seed, the word, that, the, the announcement that God has come, has fulfilled all of his promises in the person of Jesus to rescue and redeem the world. This is the seed. Now, if you think about what Luke has already told us, you could, you could picture here, you could probably even do a rough uh, little outline of this on your notes of, let's think, are, have there been people already in Luke's gospel who are like each of these different places? Have there been those that were like the ones on the roadside who refused to believe? Sure. Luke's told us about who they were. They were the Pharisees. They were people who said, nope. Remember, they, we talked about this, I think, last week. They refused John's baptism. They didn't want to believe that they needed any help. They didn't want to believe that they were sinful. And so there already have been those that were on the wayside that said, no, nah, we refuse to even believe. We're not even going to let ourselves go there. You can't be the one. There already have been those in Jesus' ministry at this point. And there have already been those who have believed but had no root. Last week we talked about um, disappointment with Jesus, or maybe disappointment with your expectations of Jesus. We don't know exactly what happened, and we don't know all how the, how, how, you know, who the, the specific people were. But remember, John sends his disciples to Jesus and says, Look, are you the one, or should we wait for another, and Jesus gives him this Isaiah text, quoting all the things that he's doing, the blind see and the lame walk and all this stuff. And then Jesus says this phrase, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. In other words, they've begun to believe. They're like the, the, the seed that fell on stony ground where they, they believe, they received the word with joy, but because it didn't really take root, when adversity began to come, when John himself gets his head cut off by Herod's command, when Jesus doesn't overthrow Rome, when things don't unfold the way they expected, look, okay, so I believed that you're the chosen one, I believed that you're Messiah, but how come it's not quite happening? There have already been those at this point who, have, who are like the ones with the seed that, that, that fell, but it didn't take root. 
And then there have been those that began to follow, but that caught, got caught up in the cares of this life. Again, in the previous chapter, Jesus says, to what shall I compare this generation? You are like the children on the roadside. And he begins to give this whole uh, sort of quote here, and, and he talks about their heart being turned or from this place to that place or being distracted or whatever it is. And you kind of see, if you were sitting there, imagine if we were sitting there listening to this, and we're the disciples, we're among the 12, and Jesus is saying, you've asked him, explain this. And he says, well, you know, this is like the ones who've, who, who refuse to believe this is like the ones who believe but had no root. You know, you're kind of maybe filling in the gaps and thinking, oh, oh yeah, 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 that was like you know, the, the Pharisee, or that was like this person. You're sort of maybe seeing who Jesus may have been talking about. But when we say, okay, this parable is just as true today as it was then, that Jesus, the sower and the seed himself, the announcement of who he is, how are we like these different kinds of places where the seed falls? I, I, I want to say, I think it, it bears um, pointing out that the goodness of the sower is seen in the fact that the seed is scattered everywhere, not just on good soil. Uh, a, a farmer who wanted to be more judicious or more narrow would not plant, would not just scatter seed, but would put it in soil that would grow, preferably not Colorado soil. Nothing grows here. But here's a farmer, here's a sower that scatters it far and wide. You remember, what's this theme that runs through Luke's gospel? Luke's got this theme running through all of his stories that shows us a God that's bringing his good news, bringing his announcement to all people, Right? This is Jesus already gone. He's already gone to Gentiles. He's already gone to a widow. He's already gone to people that society says does not belong. He's already, when he stood up in the synagogue and he read the Isaiah scroll, he said, it's good news for the poor, for the cripple. He's already said, look, I am the one and I've come for all. I've come for, um, the seed is going out to all. I think there's something about this to say the goodness of the sower is seen in the fact that the seed is scattered to all. That they ha- there is this chance for them to hear and to believe. But clearly what Jesus is saying is that doesn't mean that all will. That doesn't mean that all will bear fruit. And let it take root and believe and receive. I wonder, there's a discussion sometimes about, well, if God is good, won't all sort of love and believe? And won't all sort of receive it? The goodness of God is seen in the word going out to all. And it's not that I underestimate the goodness of God. It's that I also don't underestimate the capacity of stubborn, sinful humans to refuse, to reject, to say, no, not even going to believe. Not even going to let that take root. And I think there's something here. Think of ourselves. Think of you and and your heart as we begin and talk about these three different places because uh, this would be an easy talk to to maybe say, oh, that person's the one with that or that, you know. 
But as we listen to this tonight, may the Holy Spirit open our ears to hear and open our eyes to see where we are in this, what we are doing with the word of Christ and who he is. And so the first is this. We could call it a hardened heart. The ones by the wayside, the ones whom the bird snatches up. This, this phrase is, an, is a powerful phrase with the way Jesus says it. He says in verse 12, those along the path are the ones who have heard, but then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. That language, so that they may not, the way that phrase is put together grammatically is a deliberate intention. In other words, the devil has an intention. I think it's worth remembering as we talk about, well, you know, doesn't 2 Peter 3, 9 say that God has this intention that all are saved? It's worth remembering that there is a devil at work in the present evil age and that he has an intention as well, that, it's, that, that there is an intent here of a bird trying to snatch up the seeds and that in the hardness of our own hearts, we collude with his intent. Could it be that in the hardness of our own heart, we collude with a devilish intent on preventing faith, preventing belief? Could it be? Jesus is saying, look, there's, there's seed that's gone out. It's, it's been sowed. But there are those that have said, no, the heart, I don't even want to believe this. And Satan says, yeah, that's exactly what I tried to do. That's exactly what I mean to make happen. The hardened heart. Heart says, I'm not even going to believe. I'm not even going to try. It's not, it's not where, it's not true. And the second one, maybe, might hit home a little more. And it's this rootless faith. A rootless faith. Hearts that receive with joy and believe for a while, but don't develop roots. The, the moment opposition or persecution or adversity begins to come, it, it derails. I, I think of myself in these situations. I think of how easy it is when you've grown up in church and you've sort of believed and you've, yeah, this is what we do and this is what we think. But at some point in life, and it may not happen exactly to you, but you'll probably, as enough years go by, you'll be connected to people where something happens that says, whoa, this was not the script that I had. This was, whoa. This was not how I imagined it at that altar call at youth camp. You know? Some of you are like, never went to youth camp. You know, it sounds kind of weird, you know. But others of you may know this where we received the word with great joy and there was a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of zeal and a lot of, yeah, yeah, yes. And yet it never worked its way in. It never took root. And so the moment when, and you fill in the blank, when the, what the, the situation is for, for disappointment or what the situation is for being derailed. I certainly think for me, and I've been at New Life now almost 11 years this summer, and I certainly think there's been a lot that hasn't followed the script I had in mind. <laughs> and um, I, I know that, it, that there are others of you, and I'm looking at certain ones of you, and I know your story. There's others of you that you've, you've got quite a bit more that you could say, whoa, 
That did not follow any script I've ever imagined. And this is not to make light of it at all. This is to say this is real. It would be too easy to dismiss it and say, ah, that's not me. I've got a rooted faith. No way. I know. I know what I believe. But I'm telling you, there are moments and places in our life where all of a sudden we recognize this thing has not really gone in me. And I wonder if Jesus had this text in mind from Jeremiah 17. Where Jeremiah says this, My blessing is on those people who trust in me, who put their confidence in me. They will be like a tree planted near a stream whose roots spread out toward the water. It has nothing to fear when the heat comes and its leaves are always green. It has no need to be concerned in a year of drought. It does not stop bearing fruit. What Jeremiah is saying, what God is saying through Jeremiah is, look, part of what it means to put your trust in God is that rather than relying on external water, you begin to depend on the internal water source, God himself. How deep does our trust in God really go? It's easy to say, yeah, we trust him, we trust him when there's rain and when there's all this stuff that happens. I'm not much of a gardener. We, we tried uh, last year, my wife really, it was her idea and we have this little vegetable garden box and I don't quite have the green thumb that, uh, you know, the, the Dodds do, but, but, but Holly, you know, had this vegetable garden box and we, you know, we were growing stuff and and you realize here that uh, even a little itty-bitty thing needs quite a bit more than just external water. That if it's going to grow at all, uh, or sorry, it needs a lot of external water to help because there's just, there's, there's, it's going to dig a long way before it finds any underground water. But we understand this about trees and things that grow, that you keep it in the greenhouse, you keep it in a pot, and you can water it, and you can water it, and you can water it, eventually you transfer it. And the way it survives is when it goes down deeper. When our trust in God goes down deeper beyond the external water. Many of you, because I know your stories, many of you have been, are in places where everything outside has dried up. Where was the rain? Where was the revival service? Where was the sense of God's presence? Where was that? Where was the... The, the sense of his warmth, the nearness of his presence. A few years ago, a, a book about Mother Teresa's life was released based on the diaries that they recovered. And one of the most striking uh, revelations uh, to people about Mother Teresa when they read things from her journal and things like that was her saying that right around the time that she made the decision to move to India, and it was later in, in life, right about the time she made that decision she lost all sense of the warmth of Christ. And she stopped sensing the nearness of his presence. Now, some of us would say, oh, well, it must not have been God. Mother Teresa, thank God, had roots that went down deeper than that. And she stayed. And can you imagine what it must have been like to serve the, the, in the slums of Calcutta day in and day out with no, in her words, no distractions of the radio or anything like that. She would not allow herself any comforts, I think, that even the children didn't have. She wanted to be with them. How do you live like that day after day after day when there is no sense of his warmth? Is it because something of that word of Christ went deep and took root? That, he, that she did not fear when the drought came? Because drought does come. 
But may the Spirit of God help us that these roots would go deep. I wonder if this image is what Paul had in mind when he said to the Colossians in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does it mean to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? That it's not just on the surface here and it's like, yeah, woo, I believe, I believe, I believe. And it's, it's not a, a, a cheap belief, but it's a trust that has allowed the word of Christ to go in deep, beyond the outside and the external. And thirdly, Jesus describes a cluttered life, a hardened heart, a rootless faith, a cluttered life. It's interesting, the phrases that he uses, he says uh, toward the end of it, in verse 14, as for the seed that fell among the thorns, these are the ones who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the worries and riches and pleasures. Worries seems to me to kind of, it has the picture to me of uh, maybe the person who doesn't, is anxious or is worried because there's lack. And then he talks about the riches. It seems to me that the issue is not necessarily the, the, the lack or the plenty, but this condition in the, of the heart. Because in lack, there is room for anxiety and worry. And in plenty, there is room for riches to attach themselves to us. And then he says the pleasures of this life or the pleasures of this world. That word is hedone, which is obviously where we get our words like hedonistic and this, this pursuit of pleasure. When the Bible talks about the world, it's an interesting uh, study through that word and kind of looking through the different times the word world is used. Because often it is just the word cosmos, which could mean the whole thing, the cosmos, the, the, all of the created world. But there are very clear times where this word world is used to mean humanity, the humanity that has organized itself apart from God. The world as in the people, the systems, the structures, the way that has organized itself apart from God. In, in the great image book of Revelation, it's typified by Jerusalem versus Babylon. Babylon becomes this prototype of a society that has individuals and systems and structures that have developed and organized themselves apart from God. Babylon is this whole picture of that in the scripture, and, 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 and related maybe to Babylon is Babel itself, which what happens at Babylon? Babel? It's the place where humans try to organize themselves apart from God. And so there's this image, we're meant to see this image, I think, that the world is this independent attempt to thrive, to survive, to be apart from. So when Jesus says the pleasures of this world, I don't think he means the, the joy that comes from a morning run or a, or a hike, you know, all the things that I don't really know much about. Um, <laughs> But I hear it's, there's pleasure in it. I haven't found it yet. Or a good meal with friends. There we go. I don't think he, he means that. I think what he's talking about is this pursuit of pleasure that comes from the systems and structures of people who have organized themselves apart from God, this attachment to the world. And the issue with the cluttered life, it seems to be, is that word itself, attachment. How attached. Even the image of thorns growing up among the plants. It's a nightmare because it's interwoven, it's entangled. You've become entangled with the world. My father-in-law is a very simple 
do-it-yourself farmer guy. And he, he's to the point where he loves to walk the beans himself. As little use of machines as he could do, uh, he, that's the way he likes to farm. And, and, and every time we come and visit, he makes fun of us for our gadgets and our stuff. And, you know, and, and honestly, we feel quite bad about it. But uh, not in an offended way, but just in a, gee, yeah, we've, well, what are we, yeah, what are we doing, you know? Which is ironic because just last week I was telling you about my joy in the iPad. Uh, keep in mind, I'm wrestling here. Um, but my father-in-law likes to say, uh, and you've heard this, no doubt, uh, the, the more stuff you have, the more the stuff has you. Uh, and the more you have, the more you have to take care of and uh, upkeep and maintain and all this stuff. And this is where, I, this is why I can't say to you, okay, here's the line, and here's five steps to avoid it. God bless you. Good night. The beauty of a parable is I can't say that. But that you enter this story and you say, God, am I entangled with, with the things of this world? Do the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this whole thing, has, have I become, has my heart become entangled in it? Because I, 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 I don't want that. And I can't answer how that mean, what that means and whether that means, okay, so, so sell this or do the, you, know, you work that out, but here's the point. God, help us not to be entangled with this world. God, help us not to be weathered from a place of worry or from a place of superabundance, that, that word for riches, this extra lavish abundance, or from this place of the pleasures where we're just kind of attached to it. I think this happens more easily than we realize. James um, picks up on this in his, in his letter. James is... Um, very much in the vein of wisdom literature, and he, he repeats many of these themes. In James 4, he, he talks about, don't you know that to be friends with this world is to be God's enemy? That's a strong way to say it. That to be tangled in with this world is to say that you're willing to live apart from God. You're setting yourself against Him in some ways. That these thorns and these weeds can choke it up. What, I, what stands out to me so much in this story is that the enemy's ploy is to prevent us from fruitful faith by snaring us with pride, adversity, and attachments to this world. The enemy's ploy is to prevent us from a fruitful faith by snaring us with pride. The, the, the wayside people, the ones on the roadside that say, we're not even going to believe, I don't even need it, I'm fine, I'm good. Or adversity, it doesn't get deep in us, attachments to this world. And Jesus, his goal is he says at the end of this section, but as for the seed that landed on good soil, these are the ones who after hearing the word cling to it with an honest and good heart, bear fruit with steadfast endurance. Jesus' goal is for us to hear the word, to believe it, to cling to it with an undivided heart and to patiently persist in it. I think it's worth remembering that um, so much of the way the New Testament talks about our salvation is not only in the past tense, but very much in the present tense. We are being saved. I love songs and prayers that say, thank you God, I have been saved. But I wonder if there's not enough trembling in that 
because we forget that we are, are still to persist in this. We are being saved. Elsewhere, Paul says, lift up your heads. The hour of your salvation is now nearer than it was. There's something future about our salvation. The old theology words of justification, sanctification, glorification remind us that this whole thing of salvation is not just past, but in a very real way present. I'm not talking about, oh, listen, if you sin, you're going to hell. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, may God give us the kind of humility that reminds us that we're being saved. That it, 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 it's just as easy for me or you or any of us to say, ah, and stop letting his word take root in us and to allow things to tangle in. Jesus is saying the one who steadfastly endures, the one who, what's this phrase here, with stead, bears fruit with steadfast endurance. There's something about persisting in it. Think about it even for him with his kingdom message. He's saying, I'm the one, I'm the one, and yet it's going to be a long time before they see it really come to fruit. It's going to be a while before they see it really take shape. That some endurance and patience and persisting in this is necessary, not by our strength, but by His. I want to close with this verse from Galatians 6. There's a really beautiful passage from James 4 as well. and I was torn between the two. I would read it both, but we're, near the end. we're at the end of our time. Galatians 6, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, if a person is discovered in some sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a person in the spirit of gentleness. But pay close attention to yourselves. So that you are not tempted to carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. May we not walk out of here and say, well, thank God I'm the one in good soil bearing much fruit. I believe part of the beauty of this service is that there's so many of you that have been walking with the Lord 30, 40, 50 years, and I'm looking at you, and I know I'm thinking of Brad and Ann Valentine sitting here, and I'm grateful for your long, steadfast persistence in the faith. And we can look to looking at Rich Caldwell and others where we can say, look, here's, here's faithful lives that have persisted. That there is that. But may all of us have the kind of humility that says, all right, let each one examine his own work. And then he can take pride in himself and not compare himself with someone else. The goal of a parable like this is not to say, well, I think he's kind of on the rocky part, but I've got some thorns. That's not the point. And for each will carry his own load. The point, particularly appropriate in the season of Lent, is to humble ourselves and say, Jesus, I am just as dependent on you and your grace today as I was when I first believed. What I love when you talk to people who've been walking with Christ and they're in their 70s now, 80s, you know, you talk to them, there's this tremendous meekness of saying, you know, often I've heard people say this to me, Glenn, the older I get, the more I realize how much I depend on God's grace. There's something beautiful about that. May we never be at this point that, that it's, we're so confident, we're congratulating ourselves. Oh, yeah, no, we're, we're the ones that bear fruit, but they're the ones that got snatched up by the birds. No, 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 no. That's not the point. The point is to say, God, keep me soft. And if there is hard ground in me, bring in some manure, would you? <laughs> yeah. 
Till up the soil. Break up the fallow ground. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in me. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that we are utterly and completely dependent upon you and your grace. At no point does this become about us. Keep the cross as central in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you are the patient gardener that says, don't cut down the tree this year, give it another year. Thank you for all the times that you've been patient with us and said, no, 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 don't cut it down. Thank you that you do surround us oftentimes with manure so that you can keep growing your word inside of us. So may the Spirit of God grant us the grace to be humble, to be soft, to not be entangled with this world, to patiently persist and endure till the end bearing fruit all along the way that we may glorify our Father in heaven. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. My watch did not help. (laughs) Have a great week.